This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about the rise and fall of the dinosaurs with paleontologist Steve Brasati. Dr. Steve Brasati is a paleontologist on the faculty of the School of Geosciences at the University of Edinburgh. He is widely recognised as one of the leading paleontologists of his generation and has written over 100 peer-reviewed scientific papers during his decade of research in the field and has named and described over 10 new species of dinosaurs and led groundbreaking studies on how dinosaurs rose to dominance and became extinct. And he's also now the author of The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, the book we're going to talk about today. Steve, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, thank you. So we're going to talk about dinosaurs, but also interweaved, I guess, with your own career as a paleontologist as you do in the book um so first of all let's talk about how you how you got into that gig in the first place well one of the great parts about my job nowadays is that i get to go into schools and go to museums and go to libraries and and uh, have kids come and visit the lab and so i just meet a lot of kids a lot of young kids that love dinosaurs and um it's amazing what some of these five-year-old kids already know (laughs) how they know the names of all these dinosaurs they can spell them they can pronounce them it's incredible but I uh, I was not one of those kids, and I always take a lot of um, kind of fun in telling the, the little kids, you are way ahead of where I was at your age because at that age I just didn't really have any interest in dinosaurs at all, not much interest in science. It was a bit later when I was a high school age growing up in the U.S. when I was, you know, kind of just becoming a teenager, 14 years old or so, that I got into dinosaurs. And it was really because of my youngest brother, Chris, who was one of those young dino geeks, and it was through him that uh, almost through Osmo really that the dinosaurs um the dinosaurs came to me what perhaps sounds like a daft question is what is a dinosaur because mm-hmm. dinosaur itself is a term there's lots of things that you know one of those five-year-old kids might think of <laughs> as a dinosaur that isn't necessarily scientifically classed as a dinosaur so actually to explore that let's talk about instead what was around mm-hmm. before the dinosaur. so going back to like the permian era there's Large animals crawling around that look like dinosaurs but aren't. What are they? Yep, that's right. So dinosaurs is really like any other group of animals. You know, there's features that define a dinosaur the same way there's certain things that define a mammal. So the story of dinosaurs starts, as you say, before those first dinosaurs came onto the scene in a a very different world than today. This was about 250 million years ago or so, if you can think about a vast stretch of time like that. And back then, this was the Permian period. Uh, So geologists divide up the history of Earth into different periods, just like historians do for human history. And so this Permian period, very different world from today. There was only one giant continent. This was the supercontinent of Pangaea. All of the land was smushed together and it, it stretched from North Pole to South Pole, one giant ocean surrounding that big slab of land. And that was a pretty harsh place to call home, really. It was much warmer back then. There were no ice caps. Sea levels were higher. And if you were in the middle of that supercontinent, you might be 10,000 miles from the closest coast. So there were enormous deserts in the middle of that supercontinent. Yet, for as harsh as it seems, that world, there were plenty of plants and animals that were adapted to that world. All different types of amphibians, of reptiles, of even early relatives of mammals. Some that had saber teeth and some that had sails on their back. 
and they dominated that world. But then that world was thrown into chaos about 250 million years ago when these giant volcanoes started to erupt in what is now Siberia. And these were not normal volcanoes. This was not uh, Pinatubo or Mount St. Helens or any of the volcanoes we're used to seeing on the news. But these were volcanoes completely out of scope and out of scale to anything humans have ever seen. These were super volcanoes. And these were volcanoes that for millions of years erupted through these vast fissures in the Earth's crust, spewing out tsunamis of lava and bringing with the lava all kinds of toxic gases that poisoned the atmosphere and led to runaway global warming. And that caused the most severe extinction that's ever happened in the history of the Earth. Somewhere around 95% of all species died because the climates and the environments changed so quickly. But... The volcanoes stopped erupting, things started to heal, the world started to recover, and from those 5% or so of survivors came some small little reptiles just about the size of a house cat, long gangly limbs, their limbs were held underneath their body so they walked upright, they could run really fast, and this was a new type of reptile, what we call a dinosauromorph reptile, and that's just the fancy scientific name for the very closest cousins, basically the ancestors of the dinosaurs. So what sort of things are you talking about there? You talk about a um, an expedition to Argentina, I think mm-hmm. it was, that your man that becomes your mentor, Paul Serrano, yep. basically goes and discovers. What sort of early dinosaur... Dinosaur morphs are we talking about? So the very first dinosaur morphs, they leave only these tantalizing little clues in the fossil record. So fossils are really any sort of, of remnant of ancient life forms. It could be bones, teeth, skeletons, footprints. It could be bite marks. It could be eggs. It could be nests. It could be really anything that an animal or plant you know, has inside of them or leaves behind. And the very first dinosaur morphs, they were not leaving their skeletons. They might have in some places in the world, and we just haven't found them yet. But the fossils that we have found are these very small little clues, and these are footprints and handprints, just the traces they left behind. And these are essentially whispers of the the dinosaurs that were to come. And we find these in Poland, and they're from right after that great extinction, right after those super volcanoes. And these tell us that you had these small little cat-sized reptiles running around, starting to colonize that new world as it is healing, this new, largely empty world because so many things had died before. And then over the next 10 to 20 million years, those dinosaur morphs continued to diversify. They evolved into the true dinosaurs. And what makes a dinosaur a dinosaur is a handful of features of its body, basically. So dinosaurs have extra bones in their pelvis, extra vertebrae, linking the backbone to the pelvis compared to other reptiles. They have an open pelvis. The joint where the um, the thigh bone sticks into the pelvis is a big open window, and that's not the case in other things, including in us. It's, it's a ball and socket joint in us. And they also have really big muscles on their arms. They have a huge crest of bone on their arms that anchored these enormous muscles. Those are the three things that really define a dinosaur. And they have to do with these dinosaurs evolving to walk more upright, to run faster, and to have stronger arms that they could use either for running or also for uh, for hunting their prey. And those true dinosaurs evolved from those cat-sized dinosaur morphs sometime in this 250 to 240 million years ago time frame. And then the first really good skeletons of true dinosaurs, of things that have all the features of dinosaurs, start showing up in Argentina and in Brazil. And some of these fossils were the ones that my first 
mentor in the field, Paul Serino, as you mentioned, uh, discovered him. He was a very young paleontologist, and he was younger than I am, actually, now. And it, it does make me a little bit self-conscious to think about some of those great discoveries other you know, much younger paleontologists have made in the past. But Paul got together a team. He worked with South American colleagues. This was in the 80s. This was around the time paleontology was really starting to open up. And as we see, and as I talk about in my book, we really are in a golden age now. We're finding more dinosaurs than ever before. And it is because the field has diversified so widely. It used to be just a handful of, you know, let's face it, posh old guys just kind of in their their elite universities doing most of the research. But now there's people all over the world. And China is a big part of that. But South America is an enormous part of that. There's this whole new generation of men and women, a lot of women now as well, in South America and in around the world. And Paul was part of that first wave of working with these great international colleagues and they found skeletons of these first dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, that does mean you have to go out and dig these things yourself. You don't send some, like, troop of cowboys out to <laughs> dig for you these days. People used to do that in uh, in the 1800s especially, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, some of the stories of the bad old days. And these really were the days of cowboys. I mean, these were the days of gold prospectors, of the gold rush, of the Wild West, of the railroads, of all that stuff happening, mostly in Western North America, because as as the Western United States and Western Canada were being developed and the railways were being built and trade routes were being established, whole new swaths of land were explored really for for the first time. Now, some of these lands, of course, had been explored for a long time by the Native American tribes. The Native Americans did find dinosaurs. They did. They did. And a lot of them would tell stories about dinosaurs, sometimes even write stories about dinosaurs. So we can't forget that. It's not like people just started to find dinosaurs, you know, a couple centuries ago uh, when Westerners started to do it. But as the Western world kind of, you know, marched and as universities were established, that was a big part of it. Universities, research universities, that led to the first real proliferation of research on dinosaurs, research using the modern scientific method, using experimental techniques to study dinosaurs. And it was a lot of these posh guys in these universities in mostly the eastern U.S. that would hire teams of, okay, cowboys, some of them. That's being a little bit generous. A lot of these guys were just criminals and drunkards and thieves. <laughs> and, uh, and they would go out and they were paid to hack dinosaur bones out of the ground. And they were tasked with finding the biggest dinosaurs they could find. And they would raid each other's camps. They would steal fossils from each other. They would sabotage each other. The loyalties were fluid. Some of these guys, and they were all guys, would work for you know one of these uh, dapper academics. And then they'd switch loyalties the second there was a chance to make more money. And that was really the bad old days of paleontology. There were a lot of dinosaurs discovered during that time, but there was also a lot of very sloppy research. And thankfully, the field has moved on a lot since then. (laughs) Well, we're going to come back to at least one of those guys in the second half for reasons that will become obvious when we do. But um, let's talk about what it's like on a dig now then, because go staying back with early finds and to something that you were involved in yourself. There's a dig that you're on early in the book in Portugal. What's that? So we went to Portugal when I was a student. I was working with another student called Richard Butler, who's um, from here in England. And uh, we teamed up with a a young Portuguese colleague of ours, Octavio Mateus. And uh, we wanted to try to find early dinosaurs. We wanted to find some of the skeletons of some of the first dinosaurs. You know, after having worked with Paul Serino as an undergrad, I then went on into graduate school. And, you know, that really rubbed off on me, his stories of discovering these 
oldest dinosaurs of all. And we went to Portugal because there were rocks of a similar age there, and we had read about these rocks, and we had read about how a, uh, a German undergraduate student out doing a map. So this is something geology students do, and I teach at the University of Edinburgh. This is something we teach our students, and I, I mark these dissertations where students go out and map an area of the world and say which rocks are where and how they relate to each other. So this undergrad went out in the late 70s, found some bones, some scraps of bones in uh, southern Portugal, in the Algarve, about 20 miles inland from all those very nice beaches, but in the scrublands, in this really harsh kind of mountainous climate. They were not dinosaur bones, but they were bones of amphibians, little bits and pieces, but the type of amphibians that lived at the same time as the first dinosaurs. So that guy, our hopes up. We thought, all right, you know, here are some clues, the first few clues at a crime scene, and the crime scene was never really properly investigated. You know, this student moved on. He didn't go back. And we thought, oh yeah, maybe we'll be able to find <laughs> the oldest dinosaurs of all. Well, we went there. We we looked and we looked. We relocated that student site. We started to find a lot of little scraps of bone, so bits of broken bone and teeth and that kind of stuff, but no dinosaurs. And we couldn't quite tell where the bone was coming from, but eventually we traced it up the hill and we saw that it was all falling out of this one layer of rock, just about half a meter thick. And this was essentially a mass graveyard, a cemetery of these amphibians. But these were not any normal amphibians. These were car-sized salamanders, basically, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and they had these enormous heads, the jaws snap shut at the back like a toilet seat. <laughs> it's a funny image to conjure up, but like toilet seat with hundreds of sharp teeth. And there were hundreds or even thousands of these big salamandry things that lived in flocks. They ruled the rivers and the lakes at that time, and there were so many of them that they were dominant. So that's why we haven't found dinosaurs in Portugal yet. They're probably there, but they were so rare because they were being kept down by these giant amphibians, that it's just difficult to find their skeletons. So we probably have to keep looking. You talked about that big cataclysm at the end of the Permian era, and we go into the Triassic era, the first true dinosaurs start to rise up, as you describe in the book. And as we move into the Jurassic era, the world is changing. The continents are gradually very, very, very slowly, but we're talking <laughs> about deep geological time here. The continents are moving towards more of a configuration, still a long way from where they are now, but you know, still moving into something more recognisable. That one big Pangaea continent is splitting up. What difference does that make to the rise of the, of the dinosaurs? This really looks to have been one of the hinge moments of, of Earth history. Because the more we discover about the Triassic period, the time of the first dinosaurs, the more we see how dinosaurs were not very special during that time. So from about 250 million years ago when those first little cat-sized dinosauromorphs were leaving their footprints in Poland, through the time that the skeletons of the first dinosaurs are found in Argentina and Brazil, up until the end of the Triassic 200 million years ago, so we're talking about a 50 million year stretch here, that entire time dinosaurs were not dominant. They were not at the top of the food chain. There were no T-Rexes. There were no Brontosauruses. There were no dinosaurs that were anywhere remotely that big. This was a time when those giant salamanders ruled the rivers and the lakes, and when crocodiles and their extinct relatives ruled the land. So the Triassic was really the era of the crocodiles, and the dinosaurs were playing second fiddle to that. The dinosaurs were the supporting actors in that whole scene. And that only changed 
as the Triassic gave way to the next period of geological time, which is the Jurassic period. And of course it changed. Of course, it, there's a reason they call it Jurassic Park, <laughs> because this is when all of these big, scary, fascinating looking dinosaurs started to evolve. The ones with the long necks and pot bellies that shook the earth when they walked, the meat eaters like T-Rex that were the size of buses, and all these dinosaurs with horns and plates and spikes and frills and dome heads and duck beaks and all of these things. These things were evolving in the Jurassic, and they were evolving because at the end of the Triassic period, 200 million years ago, the supercontinent started to break apart. And of course it started to break apart because otherwise we wouldn't have separate continents today. And in fact, that break occurred along the Atlantic, along what's the Atlantic coast today. That's why there's an Atlantic Ocean there. So Europe split from North America, South America split from Africa, and the water eventually came in. But before the water filled those cracks... Those fractures were volcanoes. They were super volcanoes where all this lava was coming up and a whole lot of poisonous gases. And once again, just like 50 million years earlier, there was a big extinction caused by this runaway global warming, caused by those volcanic eruptions. And that extinction, that climate change that happened then, it decimated the crocodiles. Basically, the only species that survived were a few that led to today's species. It decimated the big amphibians. Those things, almost all of those died out. But the dinosaurs were spared. The dinosaurs were the survivors. Maybe they survived because they were still largely small and humble. But then, as the Triassic gave way to the Jurassic period, those volcanoes stopped erupting, the continents continued to move around, you now had this new world, this largely empty world. It had been cleared out again, but the dinosaurs were there, they survived, and they had these new frontiers to colonize. And that led to this explosion in their evolution. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Steve Brissati and we're talking about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. And Steve, just before we broke, you mentioned a couple of iconic dinosaurs and everybody will be familiar with Brontosaurus and T-Rex. It always amazes me to read, despite what we see in Jurassic Park, that, you know, these two dinosaurs would never actually have met. They were hundreds of, hundred million years apart. But I, I want to I talk about these two groups of dinosaurs in, in the second half. So the sauropods, which is the family of dinosaurs that the brontosaurus is part of. I basically want to talk about why they, why are they so big? That is that's the money question, you know. <laughs> this is the one everybody wants to know. People want to know, you know, why do the dinosaurs die? And why were some of them so freaking huge? And, I mean, we're talking about really big. I mean, these sauropods were biblical in their proportions. The biggest ones 
species like Argentinosaurus and Patagotitan and Dreadnoughtus. How's that for a dinosaur name? Dreadnoughtus, named after the You know what you're getting with that one, don't you? You know yeah. what you're getting. These things were ship-sized, or actually, those species were bigger than Boeing 737 airplanes. And, and that's... <laughs> That's a factoid that's like, okay, that's kind of cool. But when you think about that, you think about, wait a minute. These were animals that were bigger than a jet plane. And these were not statues. They were not buildings. They were animals. They were animals that had to hatch from eggs. And they would have hatched from very small eggs, you know, just about the size of a cricket ball, actually, is what sauropods hatched from. They would have had to eat. They would have had to grow up. They would have had to avoid predators. Uh, They would have had to deal with getting sick. They would have had to move around. Uh, They would have had to reproduce. These were real animals, bigger than jet planes. That still blows my mind. And they were the biggest things that have ever lived on land. There are some whales, a few whales that have gotten bigger, but water is just a whole different realm because it's buoyant you can you don't have to really hold yourself up with limbs like you do on land so to have an animal that big on land is is incredible so why was it i mean why were those dinosaurs so big and why say are no mammals that big today and for a while people thought well there must have been something different about the world back then in the Jurassic period and the Cretaceous period, which came after. Maybe there was more oxygen in the air. Maybe gravity was weaker. You know, it sounds kind of funny, but hey, why not? You know, when you're faced with such a puzzle, those are kind of reasonable places to start. Well, it turns out there weren't really any differences in those things. I mean, the physical world was a little bit different. You know, you had the supercontinent that was breaking up. But by and large, yeah, it was a bit warmer than today, a bit more carbon dioxide, probably a bit more oxygen, but nothing that would explain why these dinosaurs got so big. What it looks like is that it was the dinosaurs themselves that were special. There was something inside of them that made them that way, that gave them the ability, that unlocked this potential to be so big. And this has been studied a lot over the last decade or so. And what's emerged from this big international team of scientists centered in Germany that's been working on this question is it's not one thing that allowed these dinosaurs to get so big. It's not like there was one genetic mutation or something like this. But it seems like they evolved a handful of different features separately at different times for different things. But those features came together to work together in a new way that all of a sudden gave these dinosaurs the ability to get really big. And some of those features are the long neck. Okay, that's really important. These dinosaurs could reach high up into the trees where no other dinosaurs could feed. So they basically had a ready source of food. They had a buffet they could just eat at all day. They wouldn't have to compete with other dinosaurs for food. So they could eat a lot. They also had really efficient lungs. They had lungs that were similar to the lungs of today's birds. And those lungs are much more efficient than our lungs. So although there was not more oxygen in the air then, these dinosaurs could take in more oxygen when they breathed than, say, mammals can. And not all dinosaurs had those lungs. Not all dinosaurs did. The meat eaters did and the long-necked sauropods did, but not the duck-billed dinosaurs and the horned dinosaurs. So that might be one reason why some of those other dinosaur groups didn't get so big. And it's the efficiency of the lungs, but also those lungs have air sacs that extend out from them that help store air. And those air sacs help cool down the body, which is really important if you're really, really big. And they also can invade the bones and lighten the skeleton. So you could have these enormous dinosaurs, but they still had bones, they still had that framework inside of them that was flat flexible enough they could move it. So when you put all those things together, then it was like, wow, evolution had happened on these things that came together to allow these dinosaurs to do things no other animals had done before and to grow so large. I said in the first half I was going to 
take us back briefly to that, um, you know, the bad old days. And that's just to bring in the character of Barnum Brown, <laughs> who is the, um, the man... I mean, he did lots and lots of stuff, but most famously discovered the first T-Rex. Tell us something about him. Barnum Brown was the first celebrity paleontologist. There are not many celebrity paleontologists today, thankfully. You know, we haven't gone the way of, like, you know, celebrity chefs and all these things. Maybe it'll happen one day. But over the course of time, there have been a few. Paul Serino, my, you know, first mentor is one. And Mark Norell, my uh, my PhD advisor, is probably somebody you could classify as a, a celebrity paleontologist. The Wall Street Journal called Mark the coolest dude alive. So I think that, that uh, qualifies. But by and large, there's not a lot of celebrity paleontologists. But Barnum Brown was the first first person to kind of make that jump into pop culture. He grew up in Kansas. His parents named him after P.T. Barnum, the, the circus guy, you know, the greatest showman. But I think that name rubbed off on him when he was young and he really lived up to it. And he started to collect rocks and fossils and bones and things when he was young. And when he got a little bit older, he just became infatuated with dinosaurs. He became infatuated with New York City. He moved to New York City. He began working in the American Museum of Natural History, which is where I would later do my PhD. Amazing place. The world's greatest dinosaur museum. No offense and all apologies to all the other dinosaur museums out there, but the American Museum there, the Upper West Side of New York on Central Park, that's the mecca. And so he went there to work. He started really low on the totem pole, but he kept begging his bosses to let him do more. And they eventually sent him out west to the expanding western United States in the very early 1900s. And they tasked him with finding dinosaur bones. There had been rumors of dinosaur bones being found in this part of eastern Montana kind of where the Great Plains starts to meet the Rocky Mountains. And so he went out there and he found the bones of an enormous dinosaur. Not the whole skeleton, just some bones, but he could tell it was a big dinosaur. He could tell it was probably about 40 feet long or so, so about 12, 13 meters long. He could tell that it walked on his hind legs only. He could tell that it had a big head and that it had razor-sharp teeth, so it must be a meat-eater. And this was the very first T-Rex fossil that was found. So he brought that back to New York. His boss, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was the big head honcho at the museum, back then he named it Tyrannosaurus Rex. They put it on display. All of those socialites and New York. They gawked at this thing. They couldn't believe that such a monster once lived. And so that meant Brown and Osborne, they wanted more. They wanted skeletons now. So Brown was uh, sent back out west and he found more fossils. Everywhere he went, he seemed to find fossils. He was one of these guys that had just a magic eye. So he found new skeletons of T-Rex. They showed definitively that yes, this was a giant meat-eating dinosaur the size of a bus. And all the while, his fame grew. So he was the advisor to Walt Disney on Fantasia. He had a weekly radio program on CBS radio. That was a big deal back then. You know, that's like having a a weekly talk show or something on the, the BBC today. He was just somebody people knew. He was a face and a name that people all around the United States knew. He was a colorful guy. He was a spy in his spare time. He spied not for countries, but for oil companies. He was always looking to make some money. He would dig up fossils in a full-length fur coat for some reason. I think just for flair. (laughs) And uh, there's all kinds of rumors of Barnum Brown all over the western United States. And that's all I'll say about that. But he was just uh, a larger-than-life figure. But he wasn't merely a character. He was one of the best fossil collectors of all time. And without him, the world would not have known about T-Rex until probably much later when who knows who might have found the first T-Rex bones, but it probably would have taken a lot more time. And just one more thing about T-Rex then to finish us off. So, I mean, it still remains the iconic dinosaur above all others, really. There's been bigger ones, you know, bigger meat-eating dinosaurs found subsequently and 
but we still have T-Rex as this sort of iconic dinosaur. But for a long time, it was a bit of a mystery because it, it seemed like a bit of an anomaly compared to other dinosaurs and we didn't really know where it came from. And so over the, in, over the intervening years, obviously, paleontology has taken on lots of new techniques and technologies. And we now have a much better picture of where. So tell us where the T-Rex came from. This is a great story because it's a story of evolution. And I think when you look at an animal like T-Rex, you go to a museum, you stand underneath the skeleton of a T-Rex, you know, this thing, you feel tiny. You feel totally exposed. You know, this is the biggest, baddest, you know, meat eater that's ever lived on Earth. And so you might think, oh, well, you know, evolution just made T-Rex one day. There was some, you know, mutation that caused a T-Rex to evolve. That's not how evolution works. And in fact, T-Rex was the product of over 100 million years of evolution of this group of dinosaurs called the Tyrannosaurs. That's kind of the bigger family that T-Rex is part of. And T-Rex was the last last surviving and the largest of the tyrannosaurs. But for most of their history, tyrannosaurs were quite small. They were human-sized, dog-sized, you know, second, third-tier predators, nowhere near the top of the food chain, living in the shadows of other giant predatory dinosaurs, allosaurs and spinosaurs and so on. And they were really good at that role. They were really good. But later on in their evolution, right towards the end of the time of dinosaurs, about 80 million years ago or so, tyrannosaurs became really big all of a sudden. Now, we don't know exactly why, but we have some clues from some of these new techniques that you mentioned. So one of the big things a lot of us do now is we use CAT scanners to see inside of dinosaur bones. And this is particularly useful with the head. If we want to know how a dinosaur sensed its world, how intelligent it was, those sorts of things. We need to know something about the brain, something about the ear. And you just can't see those things if you just look at the outside of a, of a dinosaur's head. In fact, when T-Rex was found and Barnum Brown found the first T-Rex skulls, Henry Fairfield Osborne in New York thought, whoa, you know, how did a dinosaur this big, how did it actually function? And he wanted to know what the brain was like and what the senses were like. He didn't have CAT scanners back then, so he physically sawed open a T-Rex skull, sacrificing this one-of-a-kind treasure in the name of science because that question fascinated him so much. Nowadays, thank God we don't have to do that. We put him in the scanners, same sort of medical scanners our doctors might use to see inside of us. And so we've done this with a lot of tyrannosaurs, and we can see that while they were still small, some of these humble tyrannosaurs were evolving bigger brains and ears that were able to hear a really wide range of sounds. So it looks like they were becoming smarter as they were living in the shadows, probably to survive in the shadows. And then later on, when some of those other big meat eaters that were incumbent in that large predator niche, when these things died out, the tyrannosaurs seized that opportunity, and then they became so big and so scary because they had brawn, but they also had brains. We're out of time, but we, we haven't. There's lots of <laughs> other stuff in this book, not least what happens next. Spoiler alert, they all die. <laughs> except for except for some. <laughs> yeah. There's some dinosaurs that make it through. This is where the bird story comes in. And, you know, we don't have to give it all away here, but, uh, you know, that's just more incentive to, to read the book, of course. Indeed. So I've been talking to Steve Brasati. We've been talking about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs which is out now in the UK from Picador. Steve, thank you so much for coming in Neil, and sharing it pleasure. with us. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Thank you.